Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Listeners to the Victor Davis Hanson Show, welcome to the Friday edition. We will have a look at the news of the week or some of the news from the week. That's what we usually do on the Friday edition. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about Donald Trump and the campaign for 2022. But first, let's have a word from our sponsors. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. I would like to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marcia Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. How are you doing today, Victor? I'm doing very well, Sammy. All right. Are you ready to talk a little bit of Trump? <laughs> are you ready to trumpet about Trump? I think I am. You said how was he doing in 2022 rather than 2024. So I think oh, yeah. the, intent, the intent of your question then was, what is his role in the midterm? Yeah, but um, I'm also just kind of curious, maybe what the role in the midterm is, but also for 2024. I mean, given what, if you go look at the news about Trump 
today or yesterday. It says that he directed the mob and that a Capitol policeman is suing him on January 6th. Of course, everybody was bashing him about January 6th on its anniversary as they had it. His family is being subject to tax fraud allegations. And they're, of course, accusing Trump already before 2024 has come around of inciting, possibly inciting insurrection and that 2020, as they saw it, or January 6th was just the warm up for 2024. At least that's the impression I'm getting from the news. So back to you. What do you think Trump's going to do either in 2022 or 2024? Well, he's going to use his endorsements, and he's got a very good record of about 150-something successful people who won primaries after his endorsements uh, versus two or three that didn't. Whether he endorsed people who were already well ahead is another question, but give him his due. So he's going to play a substantial role, and here are the general principles at least in 2022, I think, and as far as Trump goes. Number one, any person in the House that is actively against Trump, not to mention his agenda, either will not be reelected, probably like Liz Cheney, or won't even run like Adam Kinsinger. That's number one. Number two, the, uh, the idea that Trump was going to be labeled as a liability and he's an insurrectionist and he's a revolutionary terrorist is going to destroy a candidate. And all I have to point to is uh, Ted Cruz's blunder the other day when he called January 6th a terrorist attack and he went on Tucker Carlson. Not very much need be said, except he didn't do a very good job trying to explain his way out of it. And he was probably virtue signaling or performance arting or whatever we term we use, but it's not a viable, a viable strategy to turn on Trump. And when Chris Christie does it, it's pathetic. So that is number two principle. And number three principle is given one and two there and given Biden's dismal record, the Republicans are going to win the House, maybe the Senate, but it's a question of how big they're going to win in the House. And the more that the Democrats call Trump a terrorist, as Cruz did, basically, the more that they talk about destroying democracy, the more they talk about he's going to wage a military coup, the less resonance they have. The New York Times just did some focus groups, and they asked Democrats about January 6th, and they were shocked because a lot of the respondents in their left-wing focus poll expressed sympathy for the frustrations that made people go out, they said, out on January 6th, which begs the question, are they even Democrats anymore? I.e., the New York Times thought because they voted for Biden and they're registered Democrats, they would voice a predictable exegesis about January 6th, but they didn't, suggesting that they're well beyond the... (laughs) well beyond the independent voter now. And what I'm getting at is there's two questions here. One is, is Trump influential? And if he wants the nomination, can he have it? And the answer is yes. Can he win? I think he can probably beat Biden. I don't know who else would run, but I think he could probably beat Biden. But then the the more fundamental question is number two. 
Is it in Trump's interest, given his businesses, his new social media empire he's trying to create, he'll be 78 years old, his you know rumors of people within his family that don't want him to run, is it in his interest and is in it in the interest of A, the country and his party because the Democrats on the left are lifeless. They're inert. They're ossified. They're calcified. They have nothing. But you mentioned the word Trump and they come to life almost as if they're zombies that have been woken from the dead. And he's all they have. So if you take him out of the equation, they have nothing. But then on the other hand, if you take him out of the question, equation, do you have a pit bull who's willing to go out into the arena and fight? And I don't know. DeSantis seems he's willing. Pompeo seems unafraid. But that's the $64,000 question that looms over both the 2022 midterms and the 2024 presidential race. But uh, And then there's one other corollary. Has Trump learned to get even rather than just get mad at his opponents. That is, if he were to be elected, would he hit the ground running with no more Omarosos or Steve Bannons or people that divert attention from his agenda? And, and you know, sound, you know, the, the Mooch, Scaramucci, all of that stuff, Michael Cohen, those types of people that are in it for other reasons than advancing the Trump agenda. And so that, that's the question. And then would he hit the ground and not have appointees from the bipartisan establishment like a John Bolton or, you know, a James Mattis that are on the same page as he is? And that means, does he have a team? Does he have a team? Does he have a contract with America? And will he plan it out? So when the moment he takes office, he says, I'm a revolutionary. I only have four years. I maybe have the whole Congress behind him. Let's go and let's be professional and let's be disciplined. And we're not going to talk about somebody we call horse face or loser. But we're just not going to do that. We don't have time. What would be the contract for America that would get us back to, I don't know, there's no normalcy, but get us back to an America that's vibrant, you know, yeah. prospering, et cetera? Well, What's the contract? Number one, you got to be very careful because political conventional wisdom says don't spell out all of your positions and tie yourself down to concrete promises. Either you won't be able to keep them or the contours of the campaign three months from now will warp uh, what you said. Forget that. You have to have one. And then number two, how specific and whether they're your, because there's 50 or 80 things they should do, but the main 10, let's do the 10 commandments. I was yeah. writing that uh, today for the ultra, the, the pay, behind the paywall for uh, our ultra readers on the Victor Hansen website. And I think I remarked of what Clemenceau said of Wilson. He's Wilson's 14 points. Remember Clemenceau said, my God, <laughs> God only needed 10 commandments. Why does this deity need 14? So let's keep it to 10 so we don't outrank or try to outpace God. The first is, I think you have to get control of spending. We can go back to the old Simpson Bowles Commission. They had a, a good outline how to get to a, but a balanced budget in five or six years, retaining incentives for investment, production, and then reasonable cuts. 
and some of them are entitlements. But you have to do something. You can't have $30 trillion in debt and borrow and print $2 trillion a year because you're just a squirrel in a cage running around and around. You give more pump money, more money, more money to people, and then they go to the store and they're paying 20% more for meat or $5 a gallon for gas. And then they, they run around their little squirrel cage and want more money. And, we, uh, you know, I, I went through that farming in my 20s. and It's, it's scary. So you got to do that. Okay, hold on. But yes. Donald Trump is not known for having kept his own budget low. Is he even capable he, of doing Donald that? Trump is a businessman who loves to borrow from banks and he loves inflation because he pays back what he owes the bank in inflated dollars and he hates high interest because it cramps business. So it's going to be very difficult. But we're musical chairs now. Everybody knows the music is going to stop. And whoever doesn't have a chair, and that means whoever's president doesn't have an escape route is going to take a hit when the recession comes. So you can do one of two things. You can slow it down gradually by getting your mortgage rates up to five or 6% or the Fed up to 4%, or you can just let keep going and get drunk and go over the cliff. But it's up to you. I mean, it's going to happen. You can't continue like this. So even even Larry Summers, everybody quotes him, but I mean, Larry Summers is a pretty hard Democrat. Number two, it seems to me it's, it's really important that we get back to a closed border. And I mean, finish the wall first thing. You, come, you go into office and you say, you're going to get this thing done in a year. And, you know, they made fun of him because he said, let, let Mexico pay for it. And I know that Mexico didn't write him a check, but Mexico probably paid more than the, their share of the wall when they put guards on the border and deployed soldiers with their border with Guatemala, and they were spending a lot of money because Trump threatened tariffs and to get out of the free market arrangements we've had with them, free, free of tariffs. So you can pressure Mexico, you can build the wall, and you can deport people who came in during the Biden administration in the last years of Trump, and then start looking at other people who are here residing illegally and ask have they, you know, how long have they been here? Have they committed a felony? Do they have skills, et cetera? But that's the second thing. You've got to control the border. Number three, it's extremely important to get back to a natural gas, full production oil economy. It gives us, uh, it's a wedge, a lever against inflation. And we have, as we speak, we have five dollars a gallon gas now. I filled up the other day in a diesel pickup, and it was five ten. So that's crazy. And we're we're taxing the middle class commuter with these high energy prices. And look what we've done. We've reduced ourselves to say we don't want any of this icky fuel. So we're going to cancel pipelines. We're going to cancel federal leases. We're going to jawbone banks not to lend to oil companies. We're going to tell frackers your days are numbered. And then we're going to go beg the Russians and the Saudis, please, please pump more oil and gas. It's crazy. So we have to get back to a full energy independent natural gas, coal, and oil economy until we can find an economically competitive and viable alternate source of energy, whether that's nuclear and batteries for cars or whether it's hydrogen, it doesn't matter, but let the market adjudicate. And remember that when you're energy independent, you're not dependent on what the Iranians or the Saudis or the Russians do. And you're really not dependent 
are eager to have an optional military engagement in the Middle East. So number three, that is very, very important. Number four, I think you've got to do something about the administrative state. We've seen Anthony Fauci, mask, no mask, two mask, heads, the various heads of the CDC uh, give us conflicting information on testing. They all told us vaccinations were our magic bullet. You couldn't get the, the virus if you were vaccinated, et cetera. And what we've learned is that entire COVID from day one was weaponized. In other words, we were struck with this terrible virus, and yet here were the rules. You could not mention the fact that the Chinese knew where it originated, the manner in which it was developed, and the gain of uh, function research that was involved in it, or that they had deliberately allowed people to leave Wuhan and fly to Europe, the United States, for anywhere from 10 to two weeks while you couldn't set foot out of Wuhan. If you were in Wuhan, you wanted to go to Shanghai, you could not do it. If you wanted to go to San Francisco, go to it. And we couldn't even talk about that. We were told that the travel ban was xenophobic. We were told Nancy Pelosi and Bill de Blasio said, come to our cities, have a drink at our bar, come to Chinatown. And then they flipped and said, Trump did it. And then we went into a full lockdown. Remember it was flat in the curve, Sammy? Three weeks, two weeks, 10 days? Yeah. Well, that became, and then we were told if you are going to protest for George Floyd and if you're sympathy with Black Lives Matter, then go out there shoulder to shoulder, spitting, screaming, yelling, and guess what? It's more important for your psychological health to protest peacefully or not than it is to protect your fellow citizens with what we told you was an ironclad quarantine. Yeah. And then we were told from the Pfizer company originally and late summer that they would have an announcement in October and the trials were in and it looked like there was going to be a vaccination announcement, i.e. right before the election, natural course of events, Operation Warp Speed was going to bring dividends. And then we had a final in late October press conference. Oh, nope, we were mistaken. It's not ready. Uh-oh, Operation Warp Speed didn't work on Trump. And then right after the election is over, we hear within five days, oh, hit there. we were wrong, it worked. And so we found out that members of the Pfizer team board, et cetera, were communicating with the Biden campaign. And they try to deny it and they cannot deny it. Mm -hmm. So, and then we get into the Biden administration and we hear from Biden, oh, not one person was vaxxed until I became, no, 17 million were at a rate now of a million per day. And then he said, hmm, I look at this. I got my vaccination from Trump. I got the Pfizer. I got the J&J. I've got the Moderna. The, the original mutant, there is no mutant. The original uh, Omicron is, uh, excuse me, the original COVID-19 is bumping up against herd immunities, whether naturally acquired or through vaccination, and I'm going to take credit of it. In fact, I said during the campaign that any president with 250,000 uh, deaths is absolutely culpable for every one of them should resign. That's where we were, completely politicized. And then he said, by July 4th, it'll be over. Have a good 4th of July. And then guess what happened? The Delta came. Pretty virulent, much more infectious, a few breakthroughs, and then Omicron came. 
And Joe Biden, with his, as I said before, is angry. Get off my grass. Get your vaccination. Get your mask. That's all he could say. And then it was never therapeutics. These are the these are array of off-use, uh, legitimate, cheap drugs now in use. Here's some new avenues down the pike. Take your pick. No, it was vaccination or nothing because he wanted to get rid of it and take credit for it. And a lot of people paid the price because we did not pursue uh, therapeutics and treatment of patients that had it. And then we found out that lo and behold, the number of people who are actually dying of COVID and COVID alone is much smaller. And we're hearing from the CDC. And this would have got you kicked off, Sammy, from Twitter and Facebook. Had you yeah. said a few months ago that you need four, the average person dies with four, four, four comorbidities, yeah. not COVID. And that the average number of people in the world that die every single day has stayed absolutely constant through 2019, 2020, 2021. There have been no excess world deaths. Okay, so in other words, this virus, to be very brutal and crude and mean-spirited, was a culling factor. It went through the human herd and just very, without mercy, just took away people who's, who are age-wise were over the average median lifespan. And that's what it was. Doesn't mean it wasn't terrible or horrible. It didn't mean it didn't sometimes kill younger people, but that's what it was. And we weren't told that. Now we're told that. And why are we told that? Because Joe Biden is at 40% and they're desperate to find something to revive him. So the CDC and the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases and the National Institutes of Health, they're all together, FDA, they're all saying, oh, you gotta live with COVID. Vaccination isn't the magic bullet. We're looking at treatments. We got some new stuff coming. So it was weaponized. And the answer I'm getting at is go after and break up some of these agencies. Take the FBI and get it out of Washington. We know what it does now. It's a private retrieval service for the Biden family to find diaries and laptops or to go after some guy like James O'Keefe. And we saw what Mueller, we saw what Comey, we saw what McCabe, we saw what Kleinsmith, we saw the FISA mess. It's got to be broken up. So we've got to look at the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI, the IRS, and all of these alphabet soups in our public health because they're not doing what they should and they're hurting people. The, yeah, Pentagon, sure. the Pentagon has no business going after so-called white supremacists after losing in Afghanistan and losing deterrence with the Russians and the Chinese. Yeah. I can't go through all 10 of them, but just very quickly, a couple more of them. Foreign policy, no better friend, no worse enemy, a deterrent foreign policy. And shift F emphasis in the Pentagon from quote-unquote diversity, equity, inclusion to battlefield combat readiness. Americans do not care. If you ask Americans, I can get you the most ferocious special forces teams in the world, or I can get you the most diverse that will not be as ferocious. They'll say, we don't care about diversity. We want the most ferocious. That's our lives at stake. The Pentagon says, well, that's a false uh, alternative. I can get you the most ferocious and the most diverse. And yet I don't think they've done, proven they can't. 
because we're not using battlefield criteria to make those those selections. So we've got to, the deep unelected state. We've got to really break that up. You got to do it quick, or, or we're we're really losing. And then of course crime. Crime. The federal government's got to come in and say, listen, if you go from one state across state boundaries to another to commit violence as part of BLM or Antifa, or even some right wing, any, it doesn't matter. You go across state lines, you use social media. If you transmit this intent to commit mayhem, we're going to charge you with a federal racketeering crime and break these stuff up. And we're going to tell these local DAs, if you don't charge people with violent assaults, we're going to charge them with violating people's civil rights. We're going to do this just like the left does, but we've got to really stop it because it's destroying the sinews of civilization. Joseph Epstein had a very brilliant uh, little essay in the Wall Street Journal when he, he's, you know, he's an octogenarian, I think, and he said, life as he knew it is, is gone. He can't even go across the street to get takeout food. He lives in Evanston, a suburb of Chicago, and life in that peaceful suburb is not life anymore. It's sort of escaped from New York. And just living out here in rural Selma and going to Fresno, most people that I know think, if I park somewhere, am I going to lose my catalytic converter? Uh, if I stay out after nine and I walk to the parking lot, somebody's going to carjack me. And there's this inability to deal with it because of these district attorneys and defund the police. And then we have to, let's, let's talk about race, honestly. And this crazy idea that BLM was based on a legitimate complaint that law enforcement were killing unarmed black suspects in greater proportion than whites or Latinos or other groups, according to the number who are arrested. We have 11 or 12 million people in the United States are arrested and blacks are killed about 25% of all unarmed suspects are black. But that's, it's true, it's double their numbers in the population, but it's just about where they are in terms of total arrest. And they're underrepresented in terms of those arrested 50% for violent crimes. And it was a lie. More police officers got killed this year by black suspects than police officers killed black suspects. And so you've got to, in the foundational mythologies of BLM, that Trayvon Martin beat the, uh, was killed for no reason, and he did not beat George Zimmerman, who didn't fire in self-defense, was, was found bogus by whom? Not just a jury, but Eric Holder's Department of Justice, Human Rights, Civil Rights Division. And the same thing with the other foundational myth, Michael Brown at Ferguson. He didn't, he wasn't shot in the back. He didn't say, hands up, don't shoot. He charged Darren Wilson for the second time after trying to reach in his car and get his gun. Then he ran and he came back again. And Eric Holder, guess what, found the same thing. That's why he was acquitted and he was not charged with a federal crime. And so this was based on a myth. And out of BLM, we've had everything from what? Drugs now that might save lives for COVID that are coming out are going to be adjudicated, their allotments on the basis of race. You're going to have white, small W, but black, big B. Uh, you're going to have 55% or 50% of all commercials now will be African-American. And, you know, pilot training will be based on African-American uh, affirmative action. This is not good for a multiracial society. We're not doing, 
proportional representation, we're doing repertory representation. And yeah. so the sins of a prior generation, such as they were, are falling on what? A new generation? So we're going to tell some person in, I don't know, the Bronx with a bad back and maybe some diabetes, a white guy, 45, 58, who worked all his entire life delivering a truck in noisy Manhattan, that when he has COVID and he goes down and tries to get a Pfizer pill, they're going to say to him, hmm, check, 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 you are white, move away. And then we're going to have some, I don't know, take an, a hypothetical person, a multi-million immigrant from India, and I know a lot of them, or from South America, and I know a lot of them, who are now in the United States as legal residents, quote-unquote, people of color, very wealthy, and they're going to go to the same clinic and get, and they're young, let's take a, let's take a number, 35, but race triumphs everything. And they're going to get a life-saving drug in this other, and they don't need it, and this other guy's not. This is madness. Yeah. So I'll stop there. I can go yeah. on. But I was gonna. I was gonna say we're we're at eight, which so we better stop at least two yeah. short of God. <laughs> yeah. All right. And I have because I have another question. I have a feeling we're going to talk a little bit about some of those other things you've mentioned in our weekend edition. So the second question, of course, was about campaign commercials um, for the next year. It should be pretty exciting. There's 435 seats up coming up to be replaced and or the incumbent voted in 435 there are also some of the senatorial seats as well yeah the the census of 2020 has led to redistricting and that redistricting is kicking in for this election so it should be pretty interesting the blue message is suffering or the lefts or the democratic message is suffering right now and they know it. So what do you expect in this coming campaign for? I expect a 1938, a 1994 or 2010, somewhere between, I don't know, 40 and 70 seats they're going to pick up. I think they're going to win the Senate. I say that because statistically, the first midterms of any presidency, the president takes a hit. Trump did Everybody did. George Bush didn't because of 9-11. FDR didn't because of the Depression. But usually they do. And it's going to be magnified by the fact that this is the worst first year that we've seen in any presidential's history. It's just been a total catastrophe from Afghanistan to the economy, to energy, to the border, to the race, to the COVID, you name it. So he's going to take a hit. And we've got one of the highest numbers. I think we're in the high 20s now of incumbent Democrats who do not want to run for re-election because they don't want to spend the money. They don't want to do the effort and get beaten. And so it's much easier for a congressman to be re-elected than for a fresh face to get elected in a contested election. Those are all sort of boilerplate criteria. But more importantly, about commercials, you can imagine, you can see chaos at the Afghanistan airport. When we have, remember those pictures, people clawing each other, dust, dirt, screaming, yelling, poor soldiers trying to hold back the crowd. Then we'll just have a, I guess we call them a Chiron, those uh, letters that come down at the bottom of your screen on, on the video. And it will say, Joe Biden say, everything's fine. It looks good. Or this was a great success. And that will be absolutely devastating. Or then we'll have the border 
and with those early pictures of thousands of people sitting under that bridge and coming across the river and they're going to say two million and then superimposed with text two million with quotes from secretary mayorkas or joe biden everything's fine the border is secure or and i think this will be you know you see these little stickers biden did it but you'll see some person pull up to the gas station and it'll, maybe it'll be a california bay area gas station and they'll show a picture of his uh, gas tank at half or three quarters or not and they'll say look at the pump and he'll say wait wait where's my gas and they say well we only sell you a hundred dollars worth at a time and he said but it doesn't fill up my tank sorry get out of the way we got another person so things like that will and then you know christmas somebody said where's my present and they'll just show a whole thing in target with an empty shelf and you know what they're going to do as well and i'm not saying this in condemnation but politics is hardball they're going to show pictures of carjackings you've seen those videos sammy of nordstrom's in san francisco or walnut creek or beverly hills just hordes yes. of young kids, mostly inner city, just looting. And then they'll have clips from the Philadelphia DA or Gascon in LA or the San Francisco DA saying this is not a problem or this is all concocted by the right. There's a lot of rich quotes material there. And mm -hmm. so, boy, they're not, it's going to be incredible. The only thing that the Democrats have for them is Trump, Trump, Trump. Coo, 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 January 666, and where is Mark Zuckerberg? We need that $419 million again to pour in to our pre-selected uh, precincts so they can be taken over by private, you know, partisans and, and get, quote-unquote, get out the vote. And so that will happen, but we'll see. The other thing to watch is what's the percentage of the non-election day vote. It was 64% 2024. It usually is about... 40% at most in 2016, but in most years, it's 20 to 30%. So if the Democrats can get out 65% of votes that nobody really shows their driver's license because they mail it in, and we know how there's been irregularities in registration, et cetera, then it, it's all bets are off. So we'll, we'll see. But right now, it looks good. But I mean, it looks good for the Republicans also in Ask yourself, Sammy, so what's the game plan for the Democrats? Yeah. Is it to take Kamala Harris in a room and say, during the riots, you said this will never stop. You were gleeful when you said this will never stop. It's not going to stop. They're going to run quotes of that. And then you bailed out people. They're going to run quotes of you doing that. And then you were president. And you never went to the border and you made fun of that. So I haven't been to Europe. And then you compared... You can pay, and you got those acting kids. You didn't even have a spontaneous group of children. They were actors. And then you got up on January 6th and said it was comparable to the 3,000 dead on 9-11 or the 2,500, 2,400 that were killed at Pearl Harbor. That was an insult. What the blank are you doing? Yeah. That? I don't think so. Are they going to tell Joe, you've got to take, I don't know, Adderall, or you've got to take the Mont Montreal cognitive assessment that Trump took, but you can't go on like this, just screaming and yelling as an old shrill man, the same thing, mass, 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 vaccination. It doesn't work. You're just, you are a, false multi a force multiplier of your failed agenda. Yeah, and so I think that I, the, 
One thing that you talk about quite often and that the Democrats talk about, I don't think they're going to be able to use it in another six, seven months because the January 6th calling it an insurrection, because I don't think very many people are believing that anymore. And as you said, it's a lot of their their own voters. 56, 57, 58 percent don't believe it. And you know why it's going to be higher? Because when somebody is mad, they've been lied to that if you get three vaccinations, you're home free. And that guy over there that actually suffered through Delta or Omicron, and he's got naturally acquired immunity that he has to get a vaccination to protect him when he know it won't protect him. And there is some studies in Europe that suggest that people who have been vaccinated, as in the manner of flu shot sometimes for a small window of a week or two, four weeks, your immunity can go down as it adjusts to the uh, vaccination. And so more people in some countries have had have had COVID after being vaccinated than the Omicron variant than the people who were unvaccinated. So yeah. they're not going to change. They don't have a message. The only thing I can think that can save them is a lot of money and you know, if they put Trump back on Facebook and he starts posting every day, if they're really smart, they restore his Twitter account because yeah. that was not helping them. And then if COVID dies out with the Omicron, one way to look at Omicron, I'm not endorsing this, so I hope I'm not kicked off, but there are a lot of voices. I heard someone in the news to, today that said it's kind of like a booster shot. In other words, most people get no more serious reaction to being infected with Omicron than they do a second Moderna shot, for example. And therefore, it's, it's creating a widespread herd immunity, at least for a few months, and driving out the more virulent strains. And that's good, because we would have never got people to be so well, I should say, naturally vaccinated. So that could help Biden, because we know one thing about Biden. He takes credit for every good thing that Trump does. And he blames them for everything that was not Trump's fault. So, yeah, well, I see them walking back their COVID policies anyway, when they start saying that the um, <laughs> COVID, well, you know, when they start saying that, well, I, we think people are dying of other things in hospitals now, right after yeah. Trump has gone, you know, they're going to be walking back. It was weaponized, as I said earlier, when we start off, this thing was weaponized from the day one. And yeah. it was, I, I'm not. Don't you remember what Jane Fonda said? And I'm quoting almost literally by memory, but she said something to the effect, thank God for COVID. It destroyed Trump. It was the only way to get rid of him. Yeah. And that's what the left felt. So they equated Trump with the virus. Everything yeah. he tried to do, he had two reptilian advisors, Burks and Fauci. They couldn't wait to see him gone and run over to CNN. And he was surrounded you know, by people who were trying to weaponize the virus in the bureaucratic state. Yeah. And they overwhelmed him. And he did a good job with Operation Warp Speed, the travel ban. And innately, he was right. And so was Scott Atlas. And so was Jay Bacharya and the other Stanford epidemiologists who were all vilified. Where I worked, they were been all vilified. And their characters have been attack, but they were all right. They all, they all said the same thing. You're not going to get rid of COVID. This is a mysterious, virulent coronavirus. We're going to protect, protect the sick, the vulnerable, and the elder. They have to be vaccinated. They have to be isolated. You can't go near your granddad 
if you think you've had it, we can test people who are going to come in contact. But the idea that you're going to get mass testing and mass vaccinations every couple of months for a new variant, and you're going to ignore trying to find a protocol to treat it, is insanity. And they were they were right. And what did they get for being right? They got nothing but vilification. Yeah, I know, but I'm just afraid that these the left's going to walk back their policies. They're going to say we did everything we can. We kept the numbers low. It didn't end up being the Spanish influenza no, no, after no, no. all. And now we're, now we're changing. Now we're changing. You it's think too it's late. too late? Okay, good. Late I hope you're right. <laughs> you just said we kept the numbers low. Depending on how you start the first COVID death, you can make a good argument about 380 to 400,000 people died on Trump's watch when he had no vaccinations, not one, until after the election. And you can argue that Joe Biden inherited three vaccination pro protocols that were effective for the first original strain, and yet he's got more, more, we're up to, what, 840,000 deaths. More people died on his watch. Um, Can I say something? But you don't have to ask me, Sam. You're the host. <laughs> but that it. is, the calculus is not that. They will just say we kept them low compared to what they could have been and left it, leave it at imaginary it number. Have, and now we're been. switching policy because it seems to us that the Omicron is less um, it may be more virulent, yes, but, but it's there's less a lot deadly. of studies coming out that says, you know what? You think it's not a zero sum game. It is a zero sum game. So you took all these millions and millions of people that needed surgeries and mammograms and PSA tests and asthma treatments and millions of children that needed to have social interaction and companionship and instruction and hundreds of thousands of special needs kids that needed constant attention and you shut them in their homes and you made their parents lose their jobs because unlike the Newsoms and the Pelosi's and the rest of the people, their families, they didn't have the money. They had to quit and stay home and watch their children fail on Zoom. You did all of that. So there was a cost to your timidity. And then adding insult to injury, every single one of you people broke the protocol. How dare you tell us that we have to wear masks when Gavin Newsom went to the French Laundry, when London uh, Brand, the, the mayor of San Francisco went to the French Laundry, when Nancy Pelosi snuck to a hairdresser, when the governor of Michigan's husband cut in front of the boat line to launch his boat, when Mayor Lightfoot broke the protocol. All of them did. Uh, yeah, Fauci, but Fauci did at a baseball game. Um, AOC was giving, still giving lectures about three shots and boosters. And New York is wonderful and Florida's terrible where she snuck stealthily flew down there and got caught without a mask and then hugging people in Florida. And guess what? She got COVID. Well, what happened to the three shots? And the she mask? wasn't she wasn't very stealthy, if I can put that in. <laughs> well, she's never been very stealthy, but she didn't announce I'm going to Florida, obviously, because no. that's, that's supposedly no man's land. That's Florida's becoming the left wing man, Mordor, you know. Okay, so I hope 
that you're right and the clarity of the American people is what you say. However, I think they're still going to say we kept them low compared to what they would have been and all those measures were important. They're going to make an argument. So they, that will all the that. Measures, yeah, they will say that. They will say that. You're, you're right about that, but I don't think it'll be convincing. I think they're going to have a big, big shock. I have, I have a feeling that they have no idea how angry people are about gas and immigration and especially crime. And they are sick and tired of being told that race, race, race is the end of every, it's all there is, is race, race, race. They're tired of the word diversion, equity, inclusion. They're tired of being told they're supremacist or they have privilege. And somehow, the black leadership hangs out with the white elite leadership. They're both elites, the Oprah's or the LeBron's and the Pelosi's. I don't know what the problem is, but they don't understand that out of the 250 million, I guess it's 250 million, 240 million white people, the vast majority of them are middle class and there's more in actual numbers who are poor than other groups. And when they're told they have privilege, they don't see it. Their, their kids don't go to college. They didn't go to college. And they don't like the white elite bicoastal bunch any more than anybody else does. So when you start demonizing those people, they get angry. And now there's two constituencies of the woke movement, the minority community and wealthy white suburbanites. Well, the minority community is on record that they do not want to defund the police. They do not like people grifting off the BLM movement. They do not like these district attorneys letting criminals out and coming back and killing them. And the white rich community is scared to death that their Range Rover will be hijacked or that another person will be shot in a Beverly Hills mansion or that somebody will follow you home in your Jaguar and rob you as you park in your Bel Air estate. So, They've already lost the white middle class and white working class, but they have, they're going to lose a lot of minority voters and, they're, and a lot of white suburbanites on the one issue of crime alone. All right. Well, Victor, we need to take a minute for a word from our sponsors, and then we'll come right back to talk a little bit about some more of your books and your experiences writing those books. So let's have a word from our sponsor. <laughs> VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. <laughs> Welcome back. I just want to remind everybody that Victor has a website, victorhanson.com, and please come. We'd love you to 
buy a subscription, but there's also the free subscription. And we've just implemented a newsletter and post mailings, emails for each post that we put up, or at least every two posts. So you'll get information about what's going on at the website each day if you just get a free subscription as well. But please come be one of our um, paid subscribers and get the VDH Ultra content. Victor, we've been talking about your books at the end, and I think we're on the Who Killed Homer with John Heath, Wars of the Ancient Greeks, and which was an edited volume, I believe, and then The Soul of Battle. So we would love to hear your experience or your writing, what you did really to write these books. Well, in 1998, I co-wrote Who Killed Homer, which was about the death of classics and the rediscovery of Greek wisdom with my co-author, John Heath, a professor of classics at Santa Clara University. Somebody had gone to graduate school at Stanford in the PhD program in classics. So I'd known John for a long time, over 20 years when we wrote that. And our argument was simply this. And I think it's kind of prescient about academic in general that you're a professor, you're supposed to do research to do two things, advance the field collectively, and enrich your teaching. So you're always coming across new ideas to help find new angles of instruction, new enlightenment to your students. But we had created sort of a, a wealthy elite in academia, mostly at the Ivy League prestigious schools, and their teaching loads went down, and their time off went up. And yet when you look at their research, it was of two types, so narrow or in the our field, philological, that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that an article called the use of the optative mood in the speeches in Xenophon is not valuable in some weird way. It could be 20 years ago, but not valuable in the sense of how much money was invested for that professor to take a semester off and not teach. He could do that or she could do that in their evening. And then the other problem, we were subsidizing what was then called race, class, and gender, which was the parent that bore the bastard offspring, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So there was too much research, too much snobbery, and not enough populist teaching. It was kind of the MAGA agenda for academics. And then we said that people who were very affluent and very privileged were cannibalizing their own cultural heritage. They were saying the United States was flawed at the beginning. Western civilization never outgrew its pernicious origins and birth, and it has to be destroyed or recalibrated to find salvation. And we said this is not only non-demonstrable and false, but the people who say this are the perfect epitomes of Western affluence and leisures, and they're hypocrites. And that was made in kind of a take no prisoners argument. And we just quoted people. So we didn't say that they're doing esoteric research. We quoted it. We didn't just say they're doing politically correct essays that will be worthless in 30 years. We quoted it. We didn't just say that they're not teaching. We gave statistics on the, the uh, average load going down. So students' tuition went up, their room and board went up, the cost of education went up, their indebtedness went up, and the number of people who were really trying to major in legitimate fields like history or classics went down, and those who did major in those fields were not getting adequate instruction. 
I noticed just to finish very quickly, I noticed I, I started, I got a PhD in 1979, 80, and I farmed for four and a half years. And when I went back in 84, I did keep up Greek and Latin every night when I was farming. But my point is this, by 1995, when I would interview, we, I hired maybe 10 or 12 people over that 21 year period. I noticed that they did not, these are people from Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Berkeley or UCLA or Princeton. They did not know Latin and Greek very well, not the way that we'd been taught. And when you ask them questions about, well, here's a page from Tassus, would you read it? They objected that that was an unfair way to interview them. Or how would you teach Caesar or, you know, Lysias to an undergraduate? So they were not leaving instruction. When you ask them questions, in the interviews, they, all they want to do is talk about their thesis. I would say, how far is Athens from Sparta? Blank. Why did the Mycenaean world collapse? Blank. What's the difference between Athenian democracy and Roman republicanism? Blank. Tell me how a trireme was powered. How did it work? What was it operated on? Blank. Uh, how many plays did Aristophanes write? What's your favorite one? Why? Blank, 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 blank. Can but, I ask you, what did they know? Like, what would they I know? I can tell you answer? what they knew. They <laughs> wanted to tell me. They wanted to tell me that they knew the poetic poetics of gender in Menander's Deuce Clause. And they wanted to tell me that they knew the sexual ambiguity of the rights of Sibylle and Asia Minor Didyma or something. That's what they wanted to tell me. It was some very esoteric thing that they'd written a paper on in a very esoteric seminar, and they wrote a very even more esoteric thesis on it. And so that, and for our students that were quote unquote marginalized, they were mostly Mexican American or Southeast Asian or poor whites from the Oklahoma diaspora. How could you hire those people and turn them loose? You couldn't. It was very hard to find somebody. And we found very good professors, but they were usually not from those schools. But the problem was that they had so strangled the profession, there were no jobs. So the profession was turning out 150, 100 PhDs, and there were maybe 10 or 12 jobs. So all of a sudden, Cal State Fresno that started, you know, at better salary than Stanford did, and it was cheaper to live here, you get people that wanted to teach. And they were doing you a favor, they thought, but we thought we were doing a favor for them because they were unemployable. Yeah. We put all that in the book, but also, you know, about what the West was. And we went through every criticisms of the Greek slavery, sexism, racism. We went through all of it. It's all there. And I think it's been a pretty good, it's, it stood the test of time. The other book, The Wars of the Ancient Greeks, was a weird thing. John Keegan, the military historian, once called me and said, I'm doing a, a history of war for each chronological time period. Would you write the first one on the wars of the, uh, the Greeks? And so I just said, well, what's the rules? And he said, you know, here's so many pictures I need. This is the type of audience. So I wrote it and it sold pretty well with just a, the basics of what causes wars in the ancient world. How are they fought? Were they decisive? What did they solve, not solve? How many people were injured? 
what was the religious, economic, social, political, cultural impact of war? How was it portrayed in literature or art? It's all there. But it was funny when that series was sold to different countries, I got a call from the French publisher and they said, I won't mention the person's name. He's a very famous French classicist. And he said, this is, I was not asked to do this. This is an insult to my dignity that you would quote unquote, ask an American farmer from the provinces of the United States who teaches at a third tier state agricultural school to dare write this when I was available. And then he wrote 20 pages of what he thought were corrections, all in French. So I was out farming during the summer. So I spent a whole month and I read the entire French thing. And out of the 28, I think 31 complaints, I found one where I had defined the Hellenistic period in a different way, a 19th century ending date, rather than the Battle of Actium, I had used the destruction of Carthage, as people had done in one line. And that was it. And, yet, and I bet I bet he still felt good about his, you are a provincial fool. Statement. Yeah, he did. I said, this is the most. <laughs> and then what was funny was, I read the whole thing in French. He wouldn't read, you know. He had to read the French translation of mine. And then he said things that weren't true. So I went back and I thought, this guy is at the Sorbonne or maybe it was the University of Rennes. I don't know. But I thought, surely he knows English. So I went and took the English thing that I wrote. And then I took the French translation and I collated line. And it was so bad that he was attacking a French translation that had mistranslated in English. And he never even took the time to read the English. So he was accusing me of things I hadn't written. So when I did it, I sent them, and John Keegan just said, send it to the, the publisher. And you know what I got back? A little curt line in French. All your criticisms are legitimate, and the objections are unfounded. That was it. No, thank you for spending 50 hours of your time, you know? <laughs> so I have a certain eccentric anger about that book not directed at the late john keegan who was a wonderful person but yeah. the french who did that it went into about four or five languages and yeah. final one was you said the wars the soul of battle but why don't we save that for our next yes because um, we're running podcast. out of time we're definitely out of time we would like to thank everybody we have new social media faces on MeWe and on gitter so please if those are your preferred Tammy, social media before, come join us before i leave i got some emails criticizing me uh -oh. because you say victor can i say something and you can say whatever you want. I'm a, I know that I'm a blabbermouth, uh, but, but you just have to interrupt and say, this is the way it's going to be. Take charge. All right. All right. I will become Alexander the Great or somebody such no, as Shitch. You know, it'll be Cleopatra or something. Oh, I, 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 I'm offended. You know what? I, I get offended when they feel like women have to aspire to be some great woman from the past. I think that gender doesn't make any difference and you should aspire to be some great whoever. Alexander the Great was not male. He was uh, non-identifying. Is that what you're saying? 
<laughs> That's true, but I didn't actually mean that. I just meant, you know, with all the power and force of Alexander the Great, he was quite a combatant on the battlefield. At least that's my understanding of it. Yeah, he was. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody, but, for listening. Yeah, thank you. This is Victor Davis Hansen and Sam and Wink, and we're signing off.